0: Hello again and welcome to episode eight of the P56 podcast. I hope everyone had a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving. Joining me today for what should be an interesting, engaging and fun chat is Henry Hardevelt of the Atmosphere Research Group. Henry is one of the travel industry's most well-known and well-respected analysts and advisors. He currently serves as the founder and president of the Atmosphere Research Group, which provides objective research and perspectives for global travel industry organizations, including airlines, hotels, and other providers. With expertise in marketing, technology, customer experience, advertising, and many more areas, Henry is regularly called upon to provide advice and insight to large airlines, industry insiders, and the media. Prior to founding the Atmosphere Research Group, Henry headed Forrester researches global travel practice and cut his teeth working in various marketing, planning, distribution and strategy roles for TWA, Continental Airlines and the Fairmount Hotel Group. In addition to his professional experience, Henry is a god tier aviation geek with particular appreciation for TWA, Braniff and a weekly airline themed Friday AvGeek cocktail featuring vintage airline glassware to match the drink. He is based in San Francisco. Henry, welcome to the P56 podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on with me today. Martin, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward
1: to our conversation.
0: Well, that's great. So we've got a lot going on and there's a lot of different things going on in the world right now. And I think one of the biggest things that we see and feelings that a lot of people have is this kind of sense of transition. There is a lot of transition in the aviation industry, obviously lots of transition in the greater world at large. And I want to talk more about what some of these different transitions and changes mean for the industry as a whole. First and foremost, obviously we have a presidential transition that's coming about. And I wanted to see if you had any insights with regards to what potentially might come about from a new Biden administration and the potential effects that might have on the airline industry and any sure. other pieces of the airline business.
1: Right, well, look, uh, um, the biggest thing that I expect to uh, happen as a result of the Biden administration is, <clears throat> pardon me, an increased focus on getting our hands around this pandemic. And, and it's really been the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that has affected not just the airline industry, but the broader travel industry, and of course, uh, commerce, not-for-profits, pro- not everybody has been affected by this. I believe that the Biden administration, separate from uh, getting COVID-19 under control and uh, uh, including vaccines and and all, by the way, which a lot of that was started under the Trump administration, um, I think that one thing the Biden administration will do is going to set about strengthening, and in some cases repairing, uh, a lot of our international relations. Uh, and that will likely result in easier access to the United States for qualified individuals from countries who should be able to come to the U.S., whether it's for business purposes or for personal reasons. So I expect that they will roll back or eliminate the uh, uh, restrictions on people coming from Muslim-majority countries. Uh, they may make it easier for qualified international applicants to get visas to visit the United States, again, whether it's for work or for uh, personal and leisure purposes. You know, I think that that you will see the Biden administration try to elevate the US back up into its previous role as a global leader and a an ally to many countries. What's unclear is how the Biden administration will approach China. Based on news reports that I've read, it appears that for now, they may actually leave some of the tariffs in place. And that will af- could affect the airline industry in terms of orders from Chinese carriers for Boeing aircraft.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, depending on the state of U.S.-China relations, it could also affect the willingness of China to sit down uh, to negotiate an open skies agreement with the U.S., I certainly wouldn't expect that early on in the Biden administration. But it's something that might, if things go well, possibly take place in the second half, uh, the last two years of the of this four year term. The Biden administration has stated that uh, they want to be a very environmentally focused administration. And as part of that, they are going to look at ways to support the aviation industry, and becoming more environmentally friendly, or at least responsible. So perhaps we will see the Biden administration increase funding for biofuels and alt- other alternative sources of fuel, uh, whether that's for general aviation or the airline industry remains to be seen. But, you know, those are the things that I see happening, at least for now, with the Biden administration. I'll say this, I'll, I'll I should say I'll add this the Biden administration is probably not going to be uh, airline focused in terms of where it is putting its efforts. Not that they don't like airlines, not that they dislike airlines, but there are simply so many other issues at play. Yeah. That I don't think aviation is going to boil to the forefront of, of their concerns. Um, uh, the candidates that have been discussed being named to uh, the Treasury Secretary, I'm sorry, Transportation Secretary, um, are folks who have experience with transit, uh, not aviation. So that may give a hint of where they do intend to put their focus as an administration. But let's be honest, it, you know, I don't think they will ignore uh, airlines, uh, the airline and aviation industry Uh, is simply too large of a contributor to the US GDP and is a critical way we uh, facilitate business and leisure travel, not only domestically, but uh, between the US and foreign countries. Absolutely. That's a very interesting set of perspectives
0: for what's potentially to come. I I think I'll put the little note in that if someone from the Biden transition team is listening, Henry and I are both available to serve as Secretary of Transportation. Um, We have very wide industry experience. (laughs) But I think the other piece to this and the comments about China in particular, I know in the last five to 10 years, it's been this kind of large untapped market for airline service in particular, and also a huge market for Boeing on the manufacturing side. Do we see potentially some of that travel returning as things return back to normal with vaccines in place and things like that?
1: Yeah, Martin, at this point, I do. In conversations that I've had with tr- corporate travel managers and other travel buyers, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, You know, they are saying that that they are looking at their international travel uh, and trying to plan for it for 2021 with the caveat that there's a lot of uncertainty and a belief that 2021 will be the start of rebuilding. Um, uh, And there's so much uncertainty about when vaccines will become available uh, and how they will be available worldwide when it will be safe for people to resume uh, long haul travel that no one is willing to say, absolutely, we're gonna get back to 100% of our pre-COVID travel to China in 2021. What I anticipate happening is that as vaccines become available in the US and in China and people are vaccinated and companies feel that US-China travel is safe from their duty of care responsibilities, that they will allow that to resume. Uh, some of it has continued. I think we need to acknowledge that there has been travel between the US and China throughout the pandemic uh, uh, because there is still business being done and there is you know things are still being made in China for export to the United States and other countries. What I expect we will see happen is the return of nonstops from either secondary gateway cities uh, to primary gateways in China, namely Shanghai and Beijing, and as well as the resumption of United's nonstops from its San Francisco Trans Pacific gateway to secondary markets in China. Um, it will be interesting also to see how the, uh, U S carriers work with their, uh, uh, China based counterparts, uh, on cooperation, uh, uh, and, um, when and how they rebuild their us china route networks it will be int- it will be fascinating to see what comes
0: of that in the future particularly given some of the geopolitical aspects of the way things have gone and the way things will likely go in the future Mm-hmm. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit to another kind of transitional piece in the airline industry and in the aviation industry as a whole this week, uh, with Boeing's 737 MAX being uh, having received a type rating from the FAA and allowing airlines to begin to ramp the aircraft up to begin service in the next month to three months. We're in the last episode of the podcast. Uh, John Ostrower talked quite a bit about Boeing and the aircraft, and how its return to service will come into play. But I wanted to kind of see, because I know you've got expertise in this and have done research in this area, what are the passenger attitudes towards the 737 MAX? As the plane comes back, what do you think passenger attitudes will be towards the aircraft?
1: Well, thanks. I think that's a good question and a good topic to discuss. Look, passenger attitudes towards the 737 MAX are frozen in time. They're frozen to the 20 months ago uh, uh, when the plane crashed. Uh, And frankly, COVID and the inability for so many to travel has overshadowed the 737 MAX as a travel and airline related topic. So, uh, we, for example, have decided not to conduct any research with passengers around the 737 MAX because when we've done some tests, it's been very clear that COVID related concerns far outweigh and obscure their ability uh, to think about the 737 MAX. So we conducted a study in the U.S. uh, last May of more than 2,000 airline passengers. And when we conducted it, the accidents were very fresh, the 737 Max was still very much in the news. And we asked people about their willingness to fly the plane within six months and 12, um, 12 months of its return, whenever that would be. And at the time, only 14% said that they would be willing to fly the plane within six months and 20% or so said they would fly it within a year. Now. I've done market research my as part of my entire career and all of us who watch political polls, for example, know that what people say in research doesn't always prove out to be the truth. You know, one of the greatest things for airlines and Boeing for the return of the 737 max to service has been COVID. The irony of this is that with people not able to travel, They've been distracted. With COVID, this massive topic, it has obscured the max in terms of its newsworthiness. So, uh, you know, we are recording our interview the day that American Airlines is conducting a media flight with a 737 Max between Dallas-Fort Worth International and its primary maintenance base in Tulsa. American invited me to attend the event, but because of the late notice and the time I got it, Uh, Airfare was simply too expensive for me to afford, Uh, and because of the uncertainty of the schedule, it would result in me likely having to spend two nights in a hotel rather than just one. So I opted not to attend. But um, American has the 737 Max scheduled to go back into commercial service on December 29th, less than a month from now, between Miami and LaGuardia. Uh, You know, I think one of the smartest things for airlines will be to get their 737 Max planes back into service as soon as they're safely able to do so. And to do so, frankly, while people are still scared to travel. The reason I say that is that if there are consumer concerns, frankly, you've got fewer passengers flying right now and airlines have more of an ability to build up a track record showing that the 737 Max is reliable, that it is safe and that it is, if you will, just another plane. Uh, Airlines have said, or at least most airlines have said, certainly the ones in the US that are going to operate the Max, that they will be transparent in identifying 737 Max operated flights in their uh, on their websites, in their mobile apps. Letting passengers know if the max is going to be substituted for a different type of plane that was originally scheduled, and in the global distribution systems like Sabre and Amadeus, our research shows actually half of passengers do pay attention to the airplane that they fly, and it's not between because they're av geeks like you and I are, Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, only a small fraction are, but it may be that they pay attention: is it a single aisle plane versus two? Does it have Wi-Fi? does it have in seat power, things like that. But the 737 Max was such a big news story and a news story for so long. And we can't ignore the fact that it has been grounded for 20 months more than any commercial airliner, and it is coming back into service in a world where social media will dictate its image, not PR, not other company controlled marketing message messages so we the public are in charge of the 737 Max's image and the airlines had better be prepared to take that on mm-hmm. I do believe sincerely that if the Max proves itself to be safe and reliable that in less than a year or I should say in more than a year and possibly as soon as six months people are going to look at it and say it's just another plane and if the schedule and fare are convenient, they will work on it. Now, I understand that American is reprinting its safety cards to remove the MAX from the name, so it'll just appear as 737-8 or 9 uh, on on the safety card. Ryanair is gonna identify it as a 737-8200. I can understand why airlines may choose to minimize the presence of the word MAX uh, where they can, but they're not going to completely obliterate it. They're not going to completely hide it. And honestly, I think people within a year, if not sooner, are gonna be more concerned about the fundamentals. You know, is, will I be able to feel my, ankle, my ankles when I get off the plane or is the legroom so tight that I won't? Is there Wi-Fi, is there power, is there in-seat entertainment? Uh, you know, can I get my carry-on bag in the overhead bin? Those things that are really the bread and butter of how travelers view uh, uh, their airline journeys.
0: Which as certain carriers return their maxes to the skies, uh, some are doing better than others with regards to how well they space out their aircraft and what that passenger experience looks like. So it would not surprise me if certain carriers that I won't necessarily call out on the podcast face some backlash for just how tight their
1: maxes are with regards to spacing and things like that. If you're buying a ticket on Ryanair, for example, mm-hmm. then I think your expectation of your journey is that you will take off and land in one piece, and that is it. That's not that's what Ryanair is selling you, cheap basic transportation. Yeah. But I'm going to call out American Airlines for their Oasis, or as I like to call it, oasis configuration. It's miserable. American has put crappy seats in economy and in first class, And it's as if american is saying we really don't want anyone to fly us but that's not a 737 max issue that's a passenger experience issue and that's how american chooses to go to market but airlines that choose to skimp out on the cabin configuration of any aircraft make it easier for someone who offers something that's tangibly better to capitalize on it you know airlines say people only care about price and I will argue that if that's the only thing they have to compare, uh, then, then that is the most, aside from schedule, the easiest uh, uh, criteria to use in making a decision. So if you're going to invest in your product, regardless of the airplane, then you gotta tell people about it. And airlines are really weak when it comes to their marketing departments. Airline marketing departments are make it pretty departments. They focus on collateral and is the logo spaced the right way? And are we using the right colors? Not in terms of what marketing really is, which is what is our product, what is our pricing, what is our packaging, what is our promotion—the four Ps. Yeah. That's what marketing should be doing in an airline. And frankly, uh, uh, JetBlue has lost its marketing edge. Southwest is coasting. Um, you know. You know, Delta was the only airline that was in the US that was close to being viewed as a consumer brand. And we'll see how they fare uh, once business recovery uh, uh, begins.
0: Yeah, I think one of the, the interesting pieces of this, and tying it back to COVID, what role do you think the, the basic bare bones marketing, those four P's of price, product, promotion, and place, fit in to the recovery? Do you see a return back to the fundamentals, back to the basics and away from where it was basically throwing that lipstick on a pig? And I agree with Ryanair, you get what you get and that's it. And if you can play by those rules, it's a great carrier to go. And having flown to Dublin to Prague for 75 year or 75 euros for two people and with a extra legroom seats. It's great. But at the same time, if you're looking at a company like American, where I my mantra with that is you can't compete with Delta and Spirit at the same time. You're just not going to do that. And they try and they fail miserably at both. Right. Do you think trying to get people back in the air is going to change the kind of thought processes, whether it's business travel or travel for leisure?
1: Yeah, we are already starting to see airlines layer in a little bit of digital advertising. To tell people, hey, start thinking about traveling. When you're ready to take a trip, we're going to be here, you know, and tempting us with these beautiful images of some of the glorious destinations that they serve, whether it's a, you know, classic city, a beach destination, a ski destination, uh, some big uh, uh, contemporary city, or whatever it may be. Uh, and that's what they should be doing right now telling people you know it will be okay to travel and when you are ready to travel we'll be ready to take you there you know i think a lot of people have the expectation that january 1st is this flash cut between 2020 this year of dread and 2021 a new fresh year and that ain't it kids that is not going to be the way it works For one thing the virus isn't going away for another thing it's going to take a long time for a lot of the world to get vaccinated you know a year maybe more for all seven billion of us to get access to the vaccines we need and we have to recognize not everyone will be able to take the vaccine not everyone will choose to take the vaccine so we're going to have some lingering issues of fear you know being around large groups of strangers uh, that that uh, uh, in any kind of a public place, whether it's the supermarket or ski airport. We're going to have concerns about, uh, you know, do we need to wear a mask? And I think you'll see a lot more people wearing masks. Cleanliness, health, hygiene, they're gonna remain on the forefront for the air transport industry, airports and airlines, uh, and will have to be a, a core part of their communications and their marketing strategies. Uh, and how they execute as a, as businesses uh, for at least the next year to two. Interesting. Right now, everyone's talking about cleanliness. A year from now, I would expect to see cleanliness be more of what in marketing speak, we call a support point. So it won't be the lead, but it is a, something that would be used to reinforce the airline as one that it would like you to consider. And I think we will go back to more traditional messaging, route networks and cities, schedules, price, frequent flyer programs, credit card tie-ins, things like that. What disappoints me is no airline I have spoken with yet has said that they view COVID as an opportunity to rethink and reinvent themselves from a marketing standpoint. And in fact, all departments have. Air, airline marketing departments have been reduced in terms of headcount, budget, and things like that. In fact, marketing is one of the two whipping boys within most airline or, uh, organizations. The other one being in-flight service, where CFOs go to first to cut spending, uh, simply because there are a lot uh, there are a lot of big numbers involved. But uh, you know, a lot of uh, CFOs said we cut our you know we 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 wanted to emphasize cutting marketing. Uh, headcount, because it let us keep more headcount in IT, in network planning, in scheduling, uh, in uh, uh, operational roles, uh, line workers, and
0: so on. It will be interesting to look at the transition that takes place as they come out of this process as well, Mm -hmm. because we've seen, John talked about it in the previous episode, about generational shifts in who's working at these carriers and what's happening with their staffing. And I think while it's not happening now because there's a lot of entrenched people and there may be a little bit of uh, survivor bias with regards to who is left in these departments, once they do start hiring again, maybe we'll see a, a shift come about because so many of the older generation have left and or will be leaving as soon as things calm down again.
1: So a couple of things there, Martin. First, you still have most of the executive ranks at most airlines intact. Yeah. And uh, uh, these are going to be the people who are the decision makers who will approve marketing strategies, network planning strategies, pricing strategies, operational strategies, maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. So that part of the airline, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called mahogany row Uh, those names, those players probably have not changed for the most part at most airlines. Now, we've seen a couple of high-level departures at uh, Delta, um, uh, and and there are certainly some other airlines that have seen some of their top players uh, use this as an opportunity to retire uh, or to pursue other opportunities, and that's fine. But what's very interesting is that – and the loss of a lot of the more seasoned, shall we say, uh, uh, managers and and uh, 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 others. So let's say people who are at the director level uh, and above, um, uh, into the VP or senior VP ranks, um, um, or simply folks who have you know a lot of tenure uh, uh, in mid management. When that when those folks go. With them goes a lot of institutional memory. And so while they can certainly document a lot of things in terms of what's the status of different projects, where different files are, uh, and and so on, what you don't have is the uh, flexibility to stretch and then recover. So in losing some, if, if an airline has lost too much of its seasoned management ranks, it has lost with that an ability to recover more effectively. And again, this is, I'm not gonna say airlines are the only ones who are guilty of this, by the way. Any company that focuses more on how much am I saving versus who is leaving and who is staying is is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And that's as true for a bank, or an automotive company, or a pharmaceutical company, or a not-for-profit, uh, or, or a consulting firm, as it is at an airline. And I will tell you that folks I know who've left their carriers, uh, uh, and, and you know, most have been voluntary, a few not, have told me that you know, in the weeks since they've left. They're getting calls or texts or emails from their former colleagues, all start the same way. I hate to bother you, but, you know, or, you know, we've just been asked to consider this. Can I bend your ear for a minute? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what we forget is while no one has been through anything like this with COVID, a lot of people in this industry have been through prior crises, the financial recession other health pandemics, 9-11, aircraft groundings, or whatever else it may be.
0: And at that point, you hope that they have an LLC set up and an accurate hourly rate to give back <laughs> to the company. So, you,
1: know, you know what? Uh, 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 I think uh, uh, more than a few, I think, are, are, are doing that right now. I hope they are. This is actually, this conversation has been a great segue
0: to my next question, And topic that's been, I think, the topic du jour in the last 48 hours, at least among aviation business Twitter and others that I've seen in conversation, and that's An article that was published this week by the Wall Street Journal that included an estimate that anywhere between 19% and 38% of business travel that existed before the pandemic will not be returning as the recovery continues and as a vaccine is distributed. Do you agree with this fact that business travel, that a certain percentage of it is just gone and will not return? Or is there a piece that's missing to this potential assertion?
1: Absolutely not. I disagree strongly with it. We do research every month with corporate travel buyers, corporate travel managers and others who are responsible for their company's business travel, planning and spending and management. Uh, We have more than 100 uh, travel managers and travel buyers as part of it. And let me just plug it. If you are listening to this and you would like to join the corporate travel panel, please email me, henry at com, and I'll get you signed up. But what our research shows is that right now, 93% of the travel managers expect they their businesses to recover to full pre-COVID levels of spending within the next five years, and in fact, the majority of them expect to be back at 100% sometime between 2023 and 2024. Only 7% say that they do not currently expect to return to 100% within the next five years. Now there are caveats, of course. State of the vaccine availability, state of the their employees to travel for business, when and where they need to, all sorts of things like that. There's been a growing recognition that these distant meetings, the Microsoft Teams and Zoom and GoToWebinar and all of that are helpful, they're functional, but they're not as fulfilling as in-person. And uh, especially in the last month or two, you know, the so-called Zoom burnout has apparently exacerbated at many of these organizations what's interesting is some people are telling me that when they're allowed to reopen offices even with capacity caps they're surprised at the number of people who sign up to return to the office Uh, I think a lot of us are fed up uh, from working at home we're eager to get back to our place of work to have a separate place to work Mm -hmm. now business travel will not resume in a flash cut. It will be a, you know, I don't want to say a slow burn, but it will be, I think, a slow and steady pace. Externally focused business travel, primarily sales calls or travel to meet with prospective clients, current clients, uh, uh, certainly travel to oversee manufacturing facilities, plants, things like that, that will be in the first wave of of travel to return. And what's interesting is in our November survey, 1% of the travel managers said their non-essential business travel never stopped, Hmm. Uh, in part because it was mostly domestic uh, and they were able to uh, accomplish what they needed to do. What we also see is that. Uh, 8% uh, said that some of their business travel has resumed as of November. Um, A third expect to see some of their business travel resume between November 2020 and May 2021. 13% expect their business travel to start back up uh, in June 2021 or later. But what's interesting is 41% of the travel managers say right now they don't know when their business travel is going to start back up. And again, it's going to be in phases internally focused travel convention and conference focused travel likely to be in the second half of business travel recovery Um, in part because the internal travel is often uh, uh, an expense uh, and companies are understandably going to want to mind their expenses. For anything that's not revenue generating in the first year or so as they build themselves back up financially and conference and convention travel will be late in or slow to recover because people will want to be confident that when they walk into that meeting that convention uh that trade show that everyone around them is safe and that the environment is safe mm-hmm. with that
0: in particular the the zoom burnout is real and the the feeling of that is real and i know that anyone who's had a very important meeting that's gone off the fray because of technical issues i know that there was a uh convention or conference today that was going on digitally that the keynote was scrambled because people were not able to log into it and actually view it so Those technical issues you don't get necessarily sitting in a large conference room. Do you see a lot of the potential return? And with these travel managers that you've surveyed, is that waiting that you see among that 41%? Is it waiting for the vaccine to be rolled out? Or is it necessarily waiting to see what their competitors are doing as a competitive challenge that they're waiting for the first person to set foot in the water, if you will?
1: Yeah. So so okay. so long before Scott Kirby ever said that the second you see your competitor showing up and you're on Zoom uh, and you lose the sale, you'll go back, you'll get on an airplane long before Mr. Kirby made that statement. I heard that uh, in uh, April of this year uh, from from uh, the CEO of another firm, non airline related. Uh, when we were talking about business travel and his company was, you know, had just embraced the use of these video conferencing tools. Uh, And uh, uh, while they were very pleased with the money they were saving, uh, uh, he has told me that they recognize it's not the same as being there in person. So, you know, I, I, the 41% who are uncertain, uh, uh, tell me that it's more related to health and safety than anything else. Because again, their their externally focused travel, their sales calls, their client management, business account management, whatever that may be, anything that's associated with revenue is likely going to be in the first wave of uh, uh, getting back out on the road. A lot of the uncertainty also has to do with uh, international travel restrictions. Will quarantines be in place? Uh, the day we're recording this, to, uh, you know, we've heard that the CDC said you might be able to reduce quarantine from uh, 14 days to somewhere between seven and 10. Um, you know, we know that Delta is trialing a COVID uh, a negative flight between rapid result or other testing, pre-flight uh, testing on arrival in Rome. This is Atlanta to Rome Fiumicino, uh, And then if you uh, pass that, you are exempted from the 14-day quarantine on arrival in Italy. So if we see these types of initiatives take hold, uh, the use of uh, tools like the Common Pass Digital Health Pass or the Verifly Digital Health Pass, uh, if we see these embraced, then I think we will see more certainty return. But travel managers are not the ones in control of this. They are looking at public health organizations and guidelines. Uh, they are looking at the data. You know, in some cases they may have corporate security people who are providing uh, uh, advice to them or risk assessment organizations who are providing advice to them. And, and you know what? I got to respect the fact that you've got four and ten travel managers who are brave enough to say, we don't know and I'm not going to commit to a particular month in a survey to answer a question, I'm going to just say, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. I I agree. I think that's a
0: a really safe estimate to make. And it shows respect for the employees as well that are trying to potentially make these trips or that will be making these trips in in the future when they do start ramping this up. This is actually another good segue to just a thought of if you were to put your thinking cap on and look at Business travel, which business travel is a significant driver of airline profits, particularly with the big three legacy carriers and even Southwest as well, as well as the other smaller carriers. How do you think COVID-19 and the recovery from the economic effects for this for the airlines How will the business of business travel change? Will it change much at all? Will it be more lucrative, lesser lucrative? What changes do you think might come about
1: from that? Well, I think business travel will still be a more lucrative product line for for, or or segment for airlines to pursue. Uh, You know, obviously, uh, when we come out of this, I'm expecting a lot of companies are going to clamp down on premium cabin travel. Uh, they may further restrict it, they may eliminate it, but they will probably say, rather than sending everybody back to coach on long-haul flights, we'll do premium economy instead. So, you know, flash back to 1989, people got bumped out 1990, I'm sorry, 1979, 1980, and so on. People got bumped out of first class into business class, uh, uh, and now you'll see people go into premium economy, which is the 21st century version of business class. Uh, On the other hand, again, in talking with the travel managers, one of the things they recognize is when people do start traveling again, they're going to be very concerned about their health, their wellness, and their well being. And travel managers have told me that they are starting to hear from department heads and, in some cases, employees directly saying, if I'm not going long haul in premium, you know, in business class, I refuse to travel. Because when I'm in business class, I'm in a pod-like seat, and I feel safer. And if I'm not in that pod-like seat, then I won't feel as safe. And if I don't feel safe, I'm not going. Now, granted, if we've got these vaccines that are 90-plus percent effective, that's great. But, you know, 90-plus percent effective is not 100 um, percent. I think, you know, I, I—, I, I would not be surprised if we you know saw airlines increase the size of their premium economy cabins but whether that comes at the expense of business class standard coach or both remains to be seen the business travel managers that i'm speaking with and surveying tell me that that right now uh, the majority of them aren't planning to cut back on their uh, long haul uh, business travel uh, uh, flying in terms of or downgrading people. Uh, uh, but again, they all say that a lot will depend on their industry, the state of their business um, uh, and other factors. If we see business in general work rec- is, is uh, uh, recover well, that will certainly help the airlines. If we see a slow business recovery, if the economists say we are in a recession, if economic metrics are are uh, poor, then I expect businesses are going to say, guess what? Everybody's going back, you know, going into premium economy or in some cases all the way to the back and you're just going to have to grin and bear it. Uh, and And you know what? If we've got high unemployment and people can't find jobs elsewhere, they'll have to grit their teeth or not travel on the other hand if we see uh, uh, companies hiring if the job market improves dramatically and someone says you know what you're not treating me very well but this guy down the street just recruited me and their business policy their business travel policy is business class companies are going to have to be you know they're going to be forced to respond in some cases you're run by your dumbest competitor in other cases, you're run by your, you're, you know, you're dictated by your smartest competitor. That's a great quote. I completely agree with that.
0: With this, and we've seen a lot of changes as a result of COVID to the airline staffing and service model, and I know this was one area that A lot of attention for a lot of people, yourself included. Uh, As the airlines try to save money or at least reallocate their resources in the best way, we've seen shifts in not only in-flight service, but airport service as well. And I know Qantas announced a few weeks ago that they would not be staffing service desks in their airports. They would only staff ticketing desks as well as reduce their hours in their baggage offices. And doing that in an attempt to drive passengers to their app and other opportunities for resolution to problems do you think this improves the passenger experience is this something that could potentially blow up in their face and at what point do you think airlines will have cut too much
1: so you know gordon bethune famously said you can uh sell a piece of pizza for a dollar but not everybody's going to want to eat it this is an example i think where uh the mba's in the basement of qantas's headquarters Uh, all of whom I'm sure are extremely smart and probably very young, said, oh, look, you know, we can do all of this and save money. We can get rid of these jobs and save money. We can, you know, uh, get rid of this real estate potentially and save money. Uh, And everybody has a smartphone and everybody has a tablet and blah, blah, blah. Well, I would ask this. At what point does Qantas stop becoming a full-service airline? What, you know, airlines forget what service is. Service isn't check-in. Service is how do you help someone uh, recover from a, an irregular operation, a bad experience, whether it's a lost, lug, lost bag, canceled flight, delay, missed connection, when it's also, let's say, bad weather, uh, or peak travel time, or whoever, you know, whatever it may be, um, and we learned this. You know, this was the something that that the president of one airline that I work for said all the time. The measure of a good airline isn't uh, uh, how many flights you operate on time when it's sunny and seventy-two degrees. It's how do you, you know, how well do you run your business? when it's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and you've got a snowstorm at LaGuardia Airport, and uh, 70% or more of your flights are canceled, and everything has been booked full. So here's what I can see my concern about Qantas strategy, you have something bad happen to a high value customer, uh, not the person who's in Qantas's equivalent of concierge key or global services, or 360, but they're top tier frequent flyer, or maybe they're second to top tier, or maybe it's a partner carrier, or maybe it's someone who's a general member, but that person has paid for business class or first class long haul, uh, or you know something very expensive. There's a problem, and they ask for help. They look for help, and they're told, you you know, talk to the app. That's probably the last time Qantas is going to see that customer when she or he has another choice. Or if they do come back, they're gonna say, screw it. Qantas wasn't there for me in my moment of need. They're not worth paying the premium for. So I'll buy the least expensive ticket that meets my needs and screw it. And I'll be far more uh, mercenary, far more transactional, Uh, Qantas doesn't get my loyalty anymore. And I can see that. Airlines need to understand that there may be preference, but preference isn't loyalty. Preference means I've merely included you and excluded others from the consideration set. Mm -hmm. Loyalty means that I'm going to take you when you are less convenient, more expensive, or both, because there is an emotional bond that I feel with your brand. And again, that's for an airline, a hotel, a bank, a car company, a clothing brand, or anything else. And airlines suck when it comes to loyalty. They have squandered it. I agree fully.
0: So I have a couple more questions before we uh, finish this fun conversation. Both you and I are avid students of airline and aviation history. Obviously, we've got our vintage poster collections, our timetables and all of that, uh, all those fun different things. What can today's aviation professionals and even future aviation professionals learn from past economic downturns, past tumult in the industry to prepare themselves for what the recovery is going to look like on the backside of COVID?
1: Well, the the truth is that we've never had an event like COVID hit us. So no Previous recovery will look exactly like the one we will, I hope, see begin soon. The best thing that I would suggest is to look at the recovery after the uh, or through the 2008-2010 recession, because that was certainly a more worldwide event. It was longer uh, and it had a more profound impact on business travel spending as well as leisure travel spending. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, 9-11 was certainly a shock, but you have to remember there were some parts of the world where, aside from airport security changes uh, uh, and maybe certain modifications to the onboard experience, they continued to fly, uh, you know, uh, uh, on September 12th, September 13th and so on. Um, but the recession of 2008, 2010 was global affected almost every industry, you know, which in turn obviously affected demand for air travel. So I would look at that. And then I would say, but our recovery, this recovery is going to be different. And the reason is that uh, it's not a recession that has brought the industry to its knees. So this isn't something that can be cured through pricing action or route decisions alone. This COVID pandemic crisis is something that's going to rely on on people feeling confident enough to travel, uh, that the things they want to do are available to them at their destination, uh, that the the restrictions won't be onerous. Uh, uh, And so I look at some of the initiatives. For example, United has implemented a map on United.com that shows you different travel restrictions and things like that, uh, for the various destinations, at least within the United States. And it may have expanded that elsewhere. Um, you know, doing things like that to help people understand what's going to be available, what the restrictions are, uh, uh will, will I think help towards getting people to feel confident about traveling again. Certainly, All of us sharing our travel stories when we do travel will probably be even better than anything any business can do. Because if you take a trip, Martin, or if I take a trip and we share our honest feelings about it, where, you know, who did what well, what met or exceeded our expectations, where things fell short, you know, that will make us feel better uh, or certainly better educated about taking a trip. For some, it may say, you know what? I'm not ready to dip my toe in the water because of that problem they had. Others are going to say, "Oh, that fine, I can manage it." And again, it's going to be very subjective and very individual. But uh, you know, this recovery will be unlike anything because this crisis has been like unlike anything. Absolutely, and I think one of the
0: things, and I could hear the gnashing of teeth and potential wailing, if you want to put a a biblical spin on it, but. One of the hardest lessons, I think, that the airlines have had to learn is to readapt to the need for flexibility in travel, regardless of where people are going. And you never thought you would see if you were to go back and tell the Henry and Martin of 2017 that
1: in 2020, change fees would be gone for a lot of these
0: carriers.
1: You're right, because the Henry of 2020 was the Henry of 1987 or so when working at Continental Airlines, when we implemented the first Ever change fees in the airline industry. And it was a different world. We implemented the change fee at the time, our pricing department did, uh, because uh, at the time, so many transactions were, uh, uh, well, all transactions were offline. Whether they were done through a travel agency or through a ticketing office or a call center, uh, you had to deal with somebody to book. There was no internet, there was no web. There were no dot-com sites or mobile apps or anything else like that to do it yourself. So the change fee was implemented to cover the cost of labor for the res agent, the ticket office agent, uh, the travel agent to make the change uh, and rebook the passenger onto another flight. But you're right. I mean, the, the flexibility is going to be critical. The airline industry will need to put the customer in control and make sure that the customer is aware that they have a lot more control over their journey today than they did in January or February of this year. And for the once a year flyer or the twice a year flyer who still hasn't been on a plane this year, who hasn't flown and may not necessarily have friends or family who have. Uh, you know it will be very important going back to what we talked about in terms of marketing this for airlines to let people know you have far more control over your journey than you have had in the past
0: very very good point and i think communicating that out to everyone is going to be one of the it's going to be one of the biggest cultural shifts in addition to the cleanliness and the need for safety, but that flexibility will be one of the biggest cultural shifts that we'll see in both the staffing of the airline and the passengers that are flying on these carriers as well.
1: Right. Now, you know, one of the things that we've seen some airlines say is we'll let you fly standby for free, make same day changes without penalty. And that certainly is going to have an impact At you know, once we get back to stronger travel levels, Uh, uh, of uh, uh, people standing around at an airport. So how airlines invest in technology, both internally, uh, and uh, customer facing will be important. Will they need to adjust their airport gate staffing models to process large numbers of passengers standing by for flights on a more regular basis than perhaps was the case pre COVID. Again, these are all things that the airport customer service groups will have to uh, uh, test and experiment with and, and there'll be a lot of, if you will, on the job learning as long as the airlines and frankly their frontline employees are, are honest with passengers about it and the passengers understand also that, hey, look, it's not the agent's fault, be nice, uh, then hopefully we get through this and, it, and uh, they'll adjust quickly. Hopefully.
0: Well, this is the last question I have, and it's the question I ask every podcast guest that is on the cast with me. I'm going to give you a magic wand and allow you to fix one thing by waving the magic wand in the aviation or airline industry. And I'm on video with Henry right now. He's waving his magic wand. What would you change
1: and why would you change it? I would change legroom. I would increase standard coach legroom. And the reason I would do that is, or at least let the airlines that want to be viewed as more full service do that. I would like to see more differentiation between carriers. They are, a hum- far too many are just, as I said years ago, a homogenous blob. The color of the paint on the on the plane may differ, but the rest is just generic as can be. Uh, so I would like to see them at least, some focus more on legroom, Uh, uh, because for one thing, uh, there's, I think a safety benefit, uh, in case of emergency egress for another thing, you're going to have people with lingering concerns about proximity to others, even though we know the cabin of an airline, an airliner right now is probably one of the safest places from a health standpoint that you can be, uh, and simply from a comfort standpoint. If you have a little bit more legroom, people are a little bit more relaxed. There's less chance for air rage. Uh, There's less chance for unpleasantness. Uh, I think everybody is just a little bit happier. And that works for both the passengers and the crew.
0: As someone who is taller and who has had plenty of experiences in tight aircraft cabins, I 100% completely agree. And I I would fully support the waving of that wand if you yep. will. Well, Henry, is there anything else you wanted to chat about or anything else you wanted to share or any questions
1: you want me to ask? Uh, no, I mean, I've enjoyed this. It's I been have a lot too. Of fun. Uh, for the avgeeks out there, uh, uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at H. Hardivelt. Every Friday, I uh, post a cocktail uh, in the afternoon in a vintage airline uh, beverage glass, uh, uh, some of which date back to the 1940s uh so um uh you know it's that's fun uh but um no martin i really appreciate being uh, uh invited i hope that uh this has been informative and productive and useful for your listeners and appreciate uh, the invitation thank you so
0: much as as henry just said he he stole my line but i'm okay with that so Henry, thank you for joining me on the podcast this week. I will remind everyone of this, and it will be in the podcast description as well. Uh, You can find Henry's insights and weekly AvGeek cocktails by following him on Twitter at HHardevelt. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or other feedback for me or the podcast as a whole, uh, you are welcome to email p56podcast at gmail.com or find the P56 podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or at Martin Rottler on Instagram or Twitter. Henry, thank you for joining me. And to the listeners, thank you for listening and have a great day. We'll see you in a week or so with a fascinating episode with friends from the Airline Pilots Association. Have a great week.